you for uh, that song. That is a great song for our series that we're in, and particularly the lesson that you have today. Notice on your uh, chorus sheets, it says, This Christmas carol answers the question, Is faith in Jesus necessary for salvation? That's what we've been asking in the last, uh, last few weeks. And notice it answers it in the affirmative by the words that have been set to music. If you look through... Uh, o come, O come, Emmanuel, uh, it's telling us that God is with us and the promises to Israel have been answered. In fact, you can look on the back and you can see even more of the verses to this great Christmas carol. And then I even have down there at the bottom the Old Testament verses and some New Testament verses from which this is drawn. This hymn is not just a hymn of, you know, somebody's just sitting around... Actually, it's not an inclusivist hymn. They're not looking around at the stars and the great creation and getting all inspired to write some poetry. They're looking at God's Word, and it's written from that perspective. So I, I just think that's, that's an amazing thing. And all of those figures of speech that to us, it may be foreign to you, but it's only foreign because we're not familiar with the promises of the Old Testament. And to those who are saturated in the promises of the coming Christ, then that hymn and that carol is a great, it's a sermon set to music, and it's a great reminder that the faith, how people were saved in the Old Testament, same thing as in the New. It's in the promise, promises of God concerning Christ. Anyway, we're glad you guys are here. And let's tackle our lesson, because we, we have a lot of time. Several came and said, kind of getting feedback, that they would be interested in going through and seeing how, from the Old Testament, how Old Testament believers were saved. And, of course, one of them was Kirk's dear wife, who, uh, because the twins are sick, is not here. And so, But that's okay, because she can get it on the web. If you go to glenwoodconnection.org, you can get these lessons and, and hear these. But... Let's look at it. We're going to ask another hard question, and it's this. How were Old Testament believers saved? Because if you've, if you've taken note of the last few weeks, you know, well, that's an issue. And it was also an issue that was raised in class. I think Pat asked uh, if you're witnessing to a Muslim or uh, someone, uh, basically someone from Islam, how, you know, how would you point them in the Old Testament? How would you point them from the Old Testament uh, to Jesus? And so this, this is going to kind of answer that. So hopefully this will help you, uh, Pat. And then I also know Ralph was witnessing to a Jewish man here uh, in the last few months. And again, that question is raised. They, they'll, they'll look at the Old Testament. Thing is about us New Testament Christians, we're not always as adept. Again, O come, O come, Emmanuel. What, what, what are all these foreign metaphors? Well, to, uh, to maybe perhaps someone from Islam, definitely someone from Judaism, these would be very familiar. So how, how could you help them see how Old Testament believers were saved? Now, look in your notes that it says inclusivists argue. And I do have an asterisk there because when I say these two positions, inclusivists and exclusivists, I hope you know that these issues are complicated enough. There's a variety of positions by a variety of people. And I cannot 
you know, if I started specifying, it would freak you out. You would not appreciate it. So I'm just giving you, I'm just making general claims to get you into the issue, but there's all fine, you know, there's all different gray areas along the line. But in general, most inclusivists would argue this, that some supposedly holy pagans, and I put that in quotes, that's their words, in the Old Testament were saved by grace through a general faith in a generic God known through general revelation that is available to all people everywhere without exception in looking at creation, listening to their conscience, or even through the culture worshiping in conflicting worlds, religions. And we've gone over that numerous times. I think you, you have that down. That's what they're saying. And I have the chart there. They would argue there's Old Testament believers were chronologically B.C. They were informationally B.C., meaning they were born before Christ and they didn't know Jesus. Okay? Now, they say those who have never heard are in the same position. They may have been born after Christ had come, after Jesus had been born, after Christmas 2,000 years ago, but they're still informationally like an Old Testament person, like a holy pagan or like a pagan. And therefore, notice what it says, therefore, those, those who have never heard are in the same situation as Old Testament believers and can be saved in the same way without hearing and knowing Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. Now, last week we said that makes several uh, big assumptions. It makes an assumption that Old Testament believers were saved without special revelation. And I'm going to show you today that that's, that's an assumption that is wrong. You can't make that assumption. Number two, it assumes that present day people who have never heard are in the same position, but they're not because they are born after Christ had come. And that just puts you, everything has changed. That's why we have Christmas. That's why we have uh, 2010 A.D., you know, after our Lord. And so everything has changed. Now, that's what they argue, though. Exclusivists would answer this from the Bible. And again, this is the majority of us, ex exclusivists would answer this way. And notice what it says. All Old Testament believers were saved by grace, not through a general faith, but through a specific faith, in the promises of the coming Christ, not in a generic God, the God of Buddhism, the God of Islam, the God of Judaism. It's not a gen, just a generic, well, I shouldn't say God of Judaism because they were Jews, but uh, it's not a generic, it's the promises of the coming Christ known not through general revelation, but through special revelation that was given without distinction. Not necessarily did everybody hear this, just like right now. Not everybody has heard of Jesus. Well, not necessarily did everybody uh, get this special revelation. But I'll show you today, it was given without distinction, meaning uh, men and women. Jews and Gentiles in the Old Testament were saved in the same way. Men and women, rich and poor. Uh, young and old, without distinction, just like today, uh, people are saved without distinction. Now, notice it was by the Lord himself revealing it or his people. 
And it wouldn't just be a message, it could also be the redemptive acts in history like the exodus from Egypt. We're going to show you how uh, uh, Rahab heard of the exodus and they heard of the con- or she heard of the conquest. But Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, heard of the exodus and just God working in history, which, by the way, that's what we share with people. We don't share four points on a track that are just theological principles. We say God has acted in history. Christmas. Jesus has been born. Jesus lived. He died. He rose. Those are all God working in history. And we share that message that we know by special revelation. So that's the same thing uh, that was going on in the Old Testament, except... God, Christ hadn't been born. What's going on in history is the exodus of his people, the conquest of the land of Canaan, the building of Solomon's temple. And yet all of those pointed to who? Who do they all point to? Huh? Jesus. They all point to the coming Messiah. All right. So notice what it says in your notes. The content of biblical faith has always been progressively revealed by the Lord through his redemptive plan. But the focus, the focus, the focus of that content has always been the special revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, beginning from the very beginning, Genesis 3, we're going to see, he gives a promise. But that promise, it's like an embryo. It's like a little embryo. Everything that it needs is in there, and as it grows and enlarges through the Bible and through history, it culminates and it bears fruit in one person, the Lord Jesus Christ. So if you believed in those promises as God revealed them, who were you implicitly or indirectly, who were you believing in? You're believing in Jesus. You just didn't know it was going to be Jesus of Nazareth, but you knew it was going to be someone and it would meet those promises. So I, I gave you that from, from last week. Well, let's, here, let's get down to it. And here it is. There is not a single clear example in either the Old Testament or the New Testament of anyone being saved apart from special revelation. That's what I want you to see today. There's not a single clear example in Old Testament or New of anyone being saved apart. Now, if that's the case, then what are the inclusivists arguing from? What are they arguing from? What are they basing their argument on? If there's no evidence in the Bible... Do what? Assumption, hearsay, speculation, silence. It's an argument from silence. Speculation, assumption. Here's what we think went on. Okay, so the challenge to you is, if the eternal destiny of billions hangs in the balance, are we going to base it on what the scriptures say or on speculation that has no scriptural evidence for it? Now, you might be able to build a case for it, but is there any evidence? Well, let's, let's look at it. Look at, turn your Bibles to Hebrews 11, and then we're going to move back and forth between Hebrews 11 and the uh, Old Testament. Now, you say, why are we looking at Hebrews 11? Because there is where the inclusivists go in 11.6. 
But without faith, it's impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and he's the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. They say there's a general faith in a generic God, the faith principle, and all these guys in Hebrews, that's that's how they were saved, or at least some of them. But when you look through Hebrews 11, and we'll go all the way through, and we'll just hit the mountaintops of it, but we're, let's take a look at it. Let's begin first with creation. Look at Hebrews 11.3. Notice what it says. By faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by what? By the word of God. And God said, let there be, and there was. So that the things which are seen are not made of things which are visible. Here's all I want you to see. You can look at the general revelation of creation, but you, apart from faith and God's special revelation, you will not know that it was created by the Word of God. All right? And that's why all the scientific theories and hypotheses can say whatever they want. It's faith in God's revealed Word, Genesis 1 and 2, that tells us how creation came. So you look at general revelation and say there's a God... But it takes special revelation, Genesis 1 through 2, to know that he created it how? By his word. He said it, and there it was. Okay, so that's creation. Uh, Let's look at number two, Adam and Eve. Now, Adam and Eve are not mentioned in Hebrews 11, but we talked last week. Adam and Eve, they sin. They're now lost. Do they look at creation and figure all out how to be saved now, how to right what is wrong? No, what happens? Genesis 3, God takes the initiative and he comes as he was used to doing. They would walk. They had all this special revelation, all this personal relation. He comes for their time and they're not there. He knows that, but he's coming to pursue them. And he says what? Adam, where are you? Okay, now that's special revelation. And it took God initiating that. Okay, we're pretty familiar with that. Let's keep moving. Let's look at, oh, let me say this. Not only did he do that, but then he clothed them. And to clothe them, well, first of all, he also gave them the promise in Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed, and he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. There's the beginning of the gospel. Would they understand it was Jesus, Jerusalem, crucifixion by Romans? No. But is the essence of the gospel there? Yes, the essence is there. There, uh, Satan will attack and his seed will attack and wound. But God or uh, uh, the woman's seed, a, 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 a person of promise, a man of promise, will have victory and crush the head of the serpent. There's the gospel. It's, it's embryonic, it's, it, but it's a promise. And it's a promise focused on what? A coming person. A coming person. Now, not only did he do that, what else did he do? He killed animals to clothe the nakedness and the consequence to cover the consequence of their sin. He shed blood. What is that point? What is that telling us? That without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. So Adam and Eve are receiving a significant amount of special revelation pointing ultimately to the fulfillment in who? Jesus Christ, death, burial, and resurrection on the cross. Okay, enough of that. Number three, Abel and Cain. Look at Hebrews eleven four. It says, by faith. 
Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous. Who gave the special revelation? Who gave the witness? God testifying of his gifts, and through it, he being dead, still speaks. So now, this takes you to Genesis 4. And now you've got the offspring. Humanity's growing, albeit through one little family. But you've got these two, two boys, two men that are now grown, sons of Adam and Eve. They were born sinners. They're lost. Now, where do you think they figured out to offer a sacrifice? By looking at the stars and listening to their conscience? How? Do what? From the parents would be one immediate, and what would they have told them? Well, everything that we just told them and more, because we don't have everything that they receive. But we already see how blood sacrifice was important in the sense of covering their, their sin and their nakedness, and so now they're offering sacrifice. But how else would they know to do this? Based on, right here on Hebrews 11.4. God himself testified, hey, that's good. And in here, he's telling Abel, hey, that's good. And he's specially, specifically revealing it. Now go back to Genesis 4. He didn't just talk to Abel. Who else did he talk to? Cain. He talked to Cain. And so look at Genesis 4, 6. He not only, according to the New Testament... Now look, in the Old Testament, you would never know that God spoke to Abel. We only know that by the New Testament. So already we're seeing, based on the New Testament, that God spoke to these people more than what you can figure out just from the Old Testament. But that doesn't mean that we can now create books that say, here's what God said to Abel and just fill it with whatever. No, we're dependent on God's special revelation in the New Testament to tell us what, may, you know, what was said, but we wouldn't know from the Old Testament. All right? Are you thoroughly confused at this point? Now, look at, look at Genesis 4, verse 6. So the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? They had both offered sacrifices. One was acceptable, one was not. New Testament says, God told Abel, you did good. Cain's was not acceptable. Notice how he responds. So the Lord, and this isn't God, this is generic God. This is the Lord God, the I am God the God who revealed himself to Israel, the God who revealed himself to Moses. This isn't a generic God. This is the redemptive, saving Lord God who became flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. Why are you angry? And why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at your door. And it is in its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. God is telling him what he needs to do. Now, what is he going to have to do? Repent of his anger and his bitterness and whatever else is in there, either towards Abel, toward God. He's got to repent, and then he's got to place his faith in what? A generic God? No, the Lord God who has specifically revealed to him what he needs to do. And God's been gracious to say, look, you have a time to repent, but if you don't repent, there's consequences and sin is going to... Uh, take, uh, capture you. Now, then, you know, Cain doesn't listen. He rebels in unbelief. He doesn't repent. And in verse 9, the Lord says, and he kills Abel. Verse, uh, verse 9, the Lord graciously reveals himself to Cain again 
Where is Abel, your brother? He said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? And see, it's beautiful that you guys are laughing like that because we've set this up such that you're like, whoa. You're talking to the Lord God who is graciously reaching. Listen, folks, the problem's not with God. The problem is with the human heart. And even when God graciously speaks to avoid judgment because he is a God of salvation that does not delight in the death of sinners. He he doesn't have to talk to Cain. He doesn't have to do anything. He's God. They're sinners. They've already rejected him. He's graciously and he has that attitude? Whoa. Yeah, it's it's it was our attitude before we repented and came to faith in Christ. It was our attitude. And he said, "What have you done?" So anyway, The point is, there's special revelation, and it's focused on what God says to do, and that's all, that's, that's, that's all our point. Now, let's move on. Turn to Genesis 4.26. This is a little verse in Genesis 4.26 that often gets overlooked. Cain doesn't listen, as you know, and he has children, and they are born sinners, just as everyone is, and their children don't listen. And so you have in Genesis 4, you have the offspring of unbelief. Abel is a a believing seed. Cain is the unbelieving seed. So now you have the serpent seed and you have the woman seed. And guess what? They're in conflict. So now sin is growing and it's just taking over. Chapter 4 is a horrible, uh, it's just, it's horrible. Sexual immorality, violence, uh, cursing, rebellion against God, it's horrible. And then you come, and that's all the line of Cain. Then you come to verse 26. What about Seth? Seth was the, 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 the child that God gave after Abel was killed. And Seth was a believer, and he was in the line of believers. And notice what it is. As for Seth, to him was also, also a son was born, and he named him Enosh. But then look at this next sentence. Then men began to call on the name of the Lord. And that's Lord in capital letter. That is the redemptive, I am God. I am who I am, the redemptive Lord. They began to call on the name of the Lord. Now, when Jesus comes, guess who he is? He's the Lord. And so now in the New Testament, when we call on the name of Jesus, it's the Lord Jesus, the I am God. You know, he said, I am the light, I am the vine, I am who I am. Before Abraham was, I am. Here's my point. They're believing on the same Savior. It's just that he hasn't come incarnate yet. They called on the name of the Lord. Now, you might want to jot this down. Calling on the name of the Lord is described in at least four ways, and I think they're all true. And it's just in different contexts. But here's what it means to call on the Lord. You call on the name of the Lord. And we know name means authority, identity, character, all that he is and all that he promises. But here's what it means. It it can mean calling on him in the sense of salvation. Romans 10 says that. Call on the name of the Lord and you will be saved, right? And so men began to call on the name of the Lord to be saved. How was Seth and his line saved? You hear it right there. They called on the name of the Lord, which they wouldn't have known without what? Special revelation. Special revelation. 
Secondly, it can mean to call on him in the sense of supplication. It can just mean prayer. They called on the name of the Lord in prayer. It can just mean supplication. Number three, it can mean calling on the name of the Lord in the sense of proclamation. Not calling to him, but calling to other people. So in the midst of this sinful generation, men, you could literally translate this, men began to proclaim the name of the Lord. Hey, look, this is, we're in a rotten situation. We're in a rotten society. We're the, we're the few who know the Lord. They're the many who have rejected him. What should we be doing? Proclaiming the name of the Lord. Fourth, it can be call on in the sense of adoration. So you have salvation, you have supplication, you have proclamation, and you have adoration. It could simply mean men began, men and women began to publicly worship the Lord in, in the name of the Lord. Whatever that is, guess what you have going on here? You have an exclusive faith based on special revelation. You have an exclusive faith that depends on special revelation and is now proclaiming the name of the Lord to a general population that has rejected him. All right, well, let's move on. What about Enoch? Enoch, turn back to Hebrews, uh, Hebrews chapter um, 11 and verse 5. Look at Hebrews 11, verse 5. By faith, Enoch was taken away so that he did not see death and was not found because God had taken him. For before he had taken him, he had this testimony that he pleased God. Now, turn to Genesis 5. Well, we'll see the story of Enoch. If you turn back to Genesis 5, it doesn't say anything about him pleasing God. But what it does say in Genesis 5, verses 24, is that he walked with God. So again, the New Testament is giving us greater clarification of what is meant. Now, anybody that walks with God, you can already figure out from Genesis 3, where Adam and Eve walked with him, that it means to please him. But I'm just trying to show you that the New Testament tells us more about what's going on than what you could simply understand from the Old Testament, but it's not contrary to it. So look at Enoch lived uh, for uh, 65 years. He begot Methuselah. And after he begot Methuselah, Enoch walked with God 300 years and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Enoch were 365 years. And Enoch walked with God and he was not for God took him. Now, By faith, he did that. Did he do it by general revelation? No. You know how we know? Jude 14 through 15. Look at your New Testament. Jude 14 through 15. Here's another example of the New Testament telling us more about the revelation that the Old Testament believers had that you would never know just by reading the Old Testament. Now look at Jude 14 through 15. Notice what it says. Now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men also. That is, he prophesied in the past about these uh, apostate unbelievers that Jude is talking about. Don't worry about that. Just look at what it says. Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have committed in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Now, there are so many complicated things in that verse that we're not here to talk about. I just want you to see one thing. 
they, Jude predicted something. He predicted something that would happen concerning the Lord's second coming. He doesn't say Jesus, it's the Lord. The Lord's second coming that he couldn't possibly, well, first of all, because he prophesied, how did he get that information? Special revelation. So here's Enoch walking with God. Now, when you walk with God, don't you think God's going to be talking? And that's special revelation. Now, what is he talking about? We don't know. We know one thing that he talked about was the coming of the Lord in judgment in the future. So that's, that's pretty radical. And just another example, it's not general revelation that's saving. It's special revelation. Okay, let's come to Noah. The next one we see is Noah. Hebrews 11.7. Noah. So good, look back there at Hebrews. And let's see what uh, the book of Hebrews says about Noah. We don't even have to go to the Old Testament for this one. Look at Hebrews 11.7. By faith, Noah... And then what's the next phrase say? Being divinely warned of things not seen. It doesn't say Noah, by looking at his conscience and knowing I'm a bad guy, I ought to try to do better. It doesn't say Noah, by looking at creation, says there's a God out there who is merciful and I'll throw myself at him and then somehow figure out to make this boat. And there's rain coming, which I've never seen because it had never rained before. That's not, that's not the case. What it says is he's divinely warned of things not seen, and he's moved with godly fear. He prepared an ark for the saving of his household, by which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. Building the ark didn't save him. He wasn't saved by works. What saved him? By faith in God's special revelation of promise, that judgment's coming, Noah, and I have graciously, out of everybody on the planet, I have told you. And here's what you need to do. You must build this ark because rain, which you have never experienced, is coming. Now, Noah, Noah has a choice. He can repent of his sin and place his faith in the promises of God and build that ark and enter in and he will be saved. Or he can not repent and he can not obey and he would have been needing some swimming lessons. A lot of them. A lot of dog paddling. But we don't have the time to... I have all sorts of verses there that you can look at. And I've kind of been challenged in this. Because it's not specifically clear that Noah... You know, we often hear Noah preach for 120 years. Um, and it's not definitely clear that he ever really preached with words as much as his obedient faith of building this ark. So either way, but we know he would have preached with words because you couldn't build this ark and not have someone ask you a question, okay? And when they asked the question, his answer would have been like you guys. He gave a hope for the reason, that, uh, he gave a reason for the hope that was in him and he said, the Lord God has spoken, and here's what you... So, so we know, common sense tells us that he spoke with words and with works. But here's the point. God only revealed it to one man. And God only re- said to that one man, you can go back and check me on this, it's you and your family that I am saving. So that, that probably raises a lot of questions. <laughs> that I I cannot answer.
And I, I don't even pretend to know all the answers. But what I'm saying is, from the Word of God, we have a very exclusive faith going on here. And it's a faith that's a result of special revelation. I'm going to save you, and I'm going to save your family. Now, do you think if others wanted to enter in, they could have? Yes, we have a God who is that kind of God of love. and, and, and Yes, but the fact is God knew that they wouldn't. And Noah found grace. It wasn't that Noah looked at creation and said, hey, I think there's a God out there. And Noah says, and God looks down there and says, the whole planet, there's only one guy on this planet that's seeking me. No, he says, you, you've got grace. It's, you don't deserve it. You, you haven't earned it. And I'm going to reveal it to you. Let me give you some things that we know from uh, about Noah. If, if you will look up the verses that I have there in your notes and read through them, I think you'll come to these conclusions. First of all, God gave special revelation of delayed judgment for 120 years. Uh, in Genesis 6-3, he says, Look, I regret I've made this planet, and I'm going to destroy it all in the flood, and I'm going to do it in 120 years. We don't know who he gave that to. We don't know how many people know it, but we know he's a gracious God that said, Before I do it, I'm going to let you know that I'm doing it. Number two, God gave special revelation of judgment and salvation to Noah that was based on his grace. He didn't deserve it. Number three, many, if not most of the people, did not know that God would judge them for their that, that, that the flood was coming. He, they knew they deserved judgment because they could see that from general revelation. They, can, they knew they, had, they deserved judgment. What they did not know is exactly when it would come or how it would come. Many of them did not know. We can assume that because, you know, it was a big population and God only spoke to Noah. Noah didn't go around and talk to everybody, right? Have we talked to everybody? No, we haven't talked to everybody. Or they chose to ignore what they should have known from creation. That, hey, you know, we're going to be judged. We don't know when, so we ought to get right with God when. When should you get right with God? Today today because you don't know all of what he's doing second uh, fourthly joe noah was in no way deserving or worthy of god's special revelation of salvation he was righteous by grace through faith in the lord and his special revelation he had an obedient faith that built an ark by god's special revelation in fact genesis 6 says noah did all according to the word of the lord or as the lord commanded him Number five, the Son of God may have been preaching through Noah and his obedient faith. There's a passage in Peter, difficult to understand. No one really knows exactly what it means. But it could mean that through Noah's witness, Jesus was preaching to those in his generation. And then finally, we know this, the ark became or was a type of salvation because Peter says this is a, a type. And so by entering into the ark, you are saved. And today you enter into who? Jesus Christ and you're saved. So that's Noah. There's a lot there we could say. Let's go. Number seven, Abraham. Abraham's interesting. Turn your Bibles to Galatians 3, 7 through 9. Galatians 3, 7 through 9. You can read about, I, I've got all the verses there. So you can go and do your own study on this and go into it more in depth. But I just want you to see Galatians 3, 7 through 9. Look at what it says. Therefore, know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. And the scripture, and he's talking here 
of Genesis 12, 1 through 3. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, In you all the nations shall be, shall be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. Now, all I can tell you there is in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, God gives a special revelation of a promise uh, to Abraham. He's going to give him a land. He's going to give him a seed. And through him, he's going to bless all the peoples of the earth. Now, what the New Testament is saying, what Paul's saying there is that was God preaching the gospel. Did he know it was going to be in Jesus? No. But he knew that through whose seed? Abraham's seed, there would come the seed of the woman that had been promised to Abraham or to Adam and Eve. There was coming a seed through him by which all the nations would be blessed. Now drop down to Galatians 3.16. Paul gets even more specific. Look at Galatians 3.16. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say, and to seeds as of many, but as of one, and to your seed. So when you go back in Genesis, the promise is not to your seed, your, all your kids. It's to your seed. It is in one particular offspring of yours. One particular seed. And notice what Paul says, who is now who? Jesus Christ. Go to Matthew. Jesus is born. The son of Abraham and the son of... That's why they trace the genealogy. Is to say that God promised a seed. And guess what? The seed has come and it's Jesus Christ. But what's significant is the gospel was being preached. Embryonic. Embryonic. Continuing to grow. And Abraham believed it. Uh, There's so much. uh, In Romans 4... It says, Abraham, what does the scripture say again? And now we're talking Genesis 15. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was accounted him for righteousness. What? Now you say, Abraham believed God. Oh, generic God? No. Go back to Genesis 15. What did God just promise him? Abraham saying, hey, you promised me a kid. I'm getting older. If you haven't noticed, my wife is really old. He wasn't politically correct. She's really old. We ain't having any kids. I did this thing with my maid and had Ishmael, and this is disaster. That was wrong. When are you going to do this? And God says, go out, look at the stars. You, you will have a child. I promise you, the seed will come. Then it says, and Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. What did he believe? Special revelation a promise of a coming seed through him, and ultimately that led to Christ. Did he under, I'm not saying he understood all this. I'm just saying God, is, God does, and he's speaking his promises, and his people are taking him at his word by faith, with then an obedient faith, and they're being saved by the name of the Lord. All right, we can go on. Melchizedek, uh, that, here's an interesting guy, Melchizedek. He's a Gentile. He's not a Jew. And scripture says, we don't know if he's had any con- who he's had contact with, but he, he's a true believer. Abraham recognizes him as a true believer. They say, there, see, 
There's an example of a holy pagan. The only problem is Scripture doesn't tell us how he was saved. Now, thus far in Scripture, what would you, how, how would you say, how would you speculate that he was saved? Would you say general revelation? No. Would you say special revelation from the Lord God, Yahweh? Okay, so, you know, we set him aside. Moses, you know, he's mentioned. Jethro's another one. Jethro is Moses' father-in-law. He shows up out of nowhere. He's a Gentile. He's a Midianite, and he's the priest of the true God. They say, there, there, there's another example. Now, wait a minute. Does the Scripture say how he was a believer? No. If you were going to speculate based on Scripture up to this point, how would you say he was saved? Special revelation from the one true God. But here's my point. We shouldn't speculate because Scripture doesn't tell us. What we do know is everybody we've talked thus far is special revelation that points to the promise and the coming of Christ. So you move on through that. You come to Rahab. She's really interesting. The spies come and they, they, you know, they come to spy out Jericho and they have to hide. And uh, this prostitute... This Gentile prostitute, are you saved by works? No, no, she didn't deserve any of it. But why, why is she open to hiding them? She goes, look, we heard what happened. We heard what happened and how you're conquering and how you came out of Egypt. And we are, our, our, our city is, we're scared spitless. But. And so what's the special revelation? It's the redemptive history. God is at work and it's all being claimed to being done in the name of the Lord God of Israel. So she's not looking at trees and rocks and saying there's a God. She's looking at, she's hearing and see, she's hearing what God is doing in history and it's attributed to the one true God. She's supposed to put a red scarlet rope out her window and only those who are in that room where that rope is, are the only ones who are saved. Exclusive salvation based on the promises of God, and not everybody in Jericho had heard. Same thing as Noah, same thing again in Jericho. All right? Now, we go on. The Ninevites, did they get saved by uh, repent and have revival by looking up at the trees and worshiping rocks or worshiping false gods? No, who had to come? And what did God do? He moved heaven and earth to get a messenger. God could have just God could have done special revelation for those people. Repent now, okay? But he didn't. He chose to use a messenger with a special message. Uh, on and on we go. You come to Cornelius. We're not going to be able to to hit. Uh, we, we missed him now two weeks in a row. Let me say this, Cornelius the inclusivist poster boy of an informational B.C. believer, is clearly said to be unsaved and in need of hearing the gospel. When you read through the story of Cornelius, they say, okay, Old Testament, we're not getting any proof from the Old Testament. Let's, let's give up on that. Let's come to Cornelius. Cornelius is an ideal model. Why? Because Christ has already come, and supposedly he's one that's never heard. But, folks, read through that story this week. He knows Jewish people. He gives uh, alms to the Jewish people, and he prays. Now, here's the question. Was Cornelius saved before Peter preached to him? If he had died before Peter preached to him, would he have been saved? That's a tough question. I would, I would lean towards 
yes, in the Old Testament sense. He had received special, he was a Gentile that had received special revelation from the Jewish people, and he had placed his faith in that. But there's one problem with that. Was he born B.C. or A... Was he living B.C. or A.D. now? He was living A.D. Christ had already ascended into heaven. God sent the messenger, just like Jonah. I mean, he, he, he said, Peter, go eat this food. Yeah. Peter had to go. Yeah, Peter had to go, and Cornelius had to send for him. Because he had a vision. So here's the thing. Cornelius is praying. I think he could have been saved. But the point was, now you're living after Christ. And now that you live after Christ, guess who you need to believe in? It's no longer just a promise of one who is coming. You have to know the one who has come. Or you will not be saved. So look in your notes. Here's what I, you know, I know we were going to hit this crazy. So I have these filled out. But... After doing studying this this week, and, and you're just getting a fraction, I was like, you know, what, what's the principles? What, what's, what's the conclusion? Because we're done with the inclusive. Okay, we're done with that. And some of you are saying, holy hallelujah, you know. And, uh, but really, it's been good. And here's what I come away with. Number one, the pattern of biblical revelation and redemptive history is that of an exclusive or particular salvation. It is the few rather than the many who are saved. That is crystal clear. Whether it's Sodom and Gomorrah, the flood, or the conquest of Jericho, it's the few, not the many. Number two, salvation has always been by God's grace. He takes the initiative to reveal himself and the message of salvation in the promise, Old Testament, and fulfillment, New Testament of Christ. People don't get saved on their own initiative. It's God that calls, where are you? And he's calling this morning, where are you? Number three, salvation has always been through an obedient faith. Those to whom God revealed himself in the message of salvation are not deserving or worthy of such gracious salvation. There was nothing in Noah that wasn't any better than his neighbor. And there wasn't in Abraham. In fact, the New Testament tells us that, or, or the, I, I, don't, I can't remember now whether it's old or new, but there's a verse in Scripture that says, Abraham, when God called him, he was an idol worshiper. He didn't deserve, there wasn't anything good in him. Number four, salvation has always been focused on the person and work of Christ. Old Testament looked toward him. New Testament looks back and forward at his coming. Number five, salvation has always been offered to people without distinction. Those who have been recipients of his gracious salvation includes Jew, Gentile, men, women, young, old, rich, poor. Number six, Salvation is the result of God using means, his messengers, or himself, or sometimes angels, but more, more frequently people who go on his mission to share his message and miracles with the lost. He, is always, he uses means to share the message. Sometimes it's himself. Number seven, salvation since the coming of Christ requires a specific response. All who are saved hear the promises they repent of their sins and they place their faith in Christ, either his promise or his fulfillment. And then number eight, salvation has always been the gift of a holy, loving, just, merciful, sovereign Savior. The living God is lovingly just to condemn all humanity to hell. When he's just, he's loving. 
But when he's loving, he's also just. Notice, he also justly loving, he is also justly loving to save some by grace through faith in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Wow. That's a lot. I know that's a lot. That's like a fire hose that's drenching you. But here's, you need to pray through that, think through that. And all I want to ask you is this. I hope that you've made some movement in your thinking. I hope some confusion has been cleared up. What we'll do next week is we're going to look at the Romans road to missions because the the book of Romans really wraps up what's what should you and I be doing in light of this whole series? Where you know what's the what's the application for us right now right here. For now, I hope the Lord's opened your eyes a little bit to salvation in the Old Testament. It's something that I, I, I'm still learning about. I'm still seeking to understand. And I, you're not going to understand it all just from this one lesson, but I hope it's moved you farther along. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your special revelation in Christ. We thank you that uh, here at this Christmas time that we are reminded that you became the messenger and you became the messenger in flesh as a child who grew and lived a perfect life that we could never live, and you died a perfect death that we could never uh, fulfill, and you became the perfect sacrifice for our sins. You fulfilled all these Old Testament promises, and we live on this side, and you've revealed yourself to, to us. If there's anyone here tonight or this morning that you haven't revealed yourself to yet or hasn't responded, I pray that they would respond to you this morning. You're a great and awesome God, the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no other. There is no other name on heaven and earth by which we are saved. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.